Welcome to Grace Bible Church Easter morning. And uh, as we would say, if you were here, he is risen. And your response would be, and I know you just gave it, he is risen indeed. We are so glad that you're here this morning. It is an exciting day in which we celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave. We are so thankful for his sacrifice, uh, his substitutionary atonement for our sins, which we remembered on Friday. But uh, we build the foundation of our faith, and what makes our faith so unique to all other faiths is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead victorious. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, This morning's message is going to be built uh, on an acronym, ALIVE, Actively Living in View of Eternity, and our goal is to take 1 Corinthians 15 and to unfold what it looks like to live with a mindset or a focus on eternal things. I hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Again, I thank you for being here. We have music that's going to be presented um, from Ron and Emily, and we thank them for serving in that way, and then also another special piece from Gwen. So thank you for being here, and may the Lord bless you during this time. Good morning. We're grateful you joined us this morning for this Resurrection Celebration Sunday. Even though we're apart and uh, uh, coming together and worship remotely, we can still celebrate the Lord's resurrection, and it's a wonderful day to do that. This morning, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. And I love this text. It begins with a group of disciples downtrodden following the events of Friday night and the crucifixion and death of their Savior. And then they find themselves upon the road, and Jesus comes upon them, beginning in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this glorious day. Many of us are in circumstances that are difficult and challenging. But Father, the unchanging truth is that the grave is empty, Christ is risen. Father, thank you so much 
Thank you for the gift of your son, that, Father, you sent him to die on our behalf, Father God, that our sins might be forgiven and that we would have eternity with you. Father, go before us. Open our eyes, Father God, that though we may be downtrodden, that we would know Christ has risen, that our hearts would burn within us. Father, bless the service this morning and that all that will take place, that our worship would be pleasing and joyful to you, Father God, that you would bless Pastor John as he brings the word, that you would empower him by the, by the power of your spirit, Father God, to open hearts. Thank you, Father God, for this resurrection celebration. Be glorified in all we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us. We hope you enjoy the service and are blessed this morning. Hey, good morning. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I really hope you said that on the other end of your screen there. We're happy you're here with us. We are here because Jesus is alive and... Uh, we miss you. We miss you a lot. This is a little different. I say that every week, but here on Easter, I got to tell you, it feels really, really different. But you know what? Uh, Jesus is alive. That is the basis in, of our victory in Christ. And uh, he died, yes, but on the third day, he did rise again. And uh, that's why we say, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in Christ, God in his mercy made us alive in Christ. And so, uh, we know that all that all works because there's an empty grave and Jesus lives. So uh, we're going to sing now. I hope that you're singing along uh, in your home. I know it could feel a little bit uncomfortable, but hey, if there's any day for you to sing out and not be embarrassed and don't worry about it, it's today. It's Easter Sunday, okay? So uh, let's celebrate that Jesus lives.
death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my He arose with the mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah. Kids out there, there's a there's a well and, and parents, there's a part out here and grandparents. There's a part out here that says uh, shout it out. I would encourage you to shout it out, and you know the song. Greatest day in history. Death is beaten, you have rescued me. Sing it out, Jesus is alive. Empty cross, the empty grave. Life eternal, you have won the day. Shout it out, Jesus is alive. He's alive. And oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sin away, oh, happy day, happy day, I'll never be the same. Forever I am changed. When I stand in that place, free at last, meeting face to face, I am yours. Jesus, you are mine. Endless joy and perfect peace. Earthly pain finally will cease. Celebrate, Jesus is alive. Raise your voice. He's alive. And oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sin away. Oh, happy day. Happy day, I'll never be the same. Forever I am changed. And oh, what a glorious day, what a glorious way that you have saved me. 
what a glorious day. What a glorious name. Hey! And oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sin away. Oh, happy day, happy day. I'll never be the same. Oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sin away, oh, happy day, happy day, I'll never be the same. Forever I am changed. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all of Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, trample death oh trample death where is your sting the angels roar for Christ the King oh praise the name of the
shall return in robes of white the blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus Son of God was 
Good morning again, and uh, thank you for joining us on this Easter morning. We are grateful that you have chosen to worship with us and to celebrate our Lord's resurrection. Uh, thankful for the music that's already been presented and those who have participated in that. I trust that it was a blessing to your heart, preparing you, uh, your heart and your spirit to hear God's word preached and to receive it by faith and um, to grow thereby. As I said earlier, he is risen, and we would respond, he is risen indeed. And this Easter morning, we want to celebrate Christ Jesus' resurrection, and not just celebrate his resurrection from the perspective of what he did, uh, what he accomplished in his resurrection, but also how that resurrection impacts us, uh, how his resurrection can can truly uh, change our lives. It can give us a new hope and, and a, a, a new future, a new beginning. There's so much to the resurrection that is special to us. And uh, we find this, um, matter of fact, I just wrote here, one of the greatest defenses of the bodily resurrection of Christ, as well as one of the greatest assurances or affirmations that we will one day rise from the dead is the book of is the chapter 1 Corinthians 15. And so I'm going to invite you to turn there 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to be the main focus of our study this morning and we'll look at several other texts as well to draw some thoughts in. Um, but our main focus is going to be on 1 Corinthians 15. This is uh, again one of the most one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in regards to the resurrection, and one of the greatest defenses because the Apostle Paul is defending uh, against a, a belief that, that the resurrection has either already happened or is not going to happen or does not exist. And so it's important that we understand those two principles at the beginning. The title of this morning's message is ALIVE. Uh, it's an acronym, A-L-I-V-E, um, actively living in view of eternity. And so I um, give you a little background on that. About 15 years, well, 20 years ago now, um, I was a part of a church where we were seeking to find a, um, something to describe our youth group. And our youth group came up with the term ALIVE. And it was that acronym, act actively living in view of eternity. And I just want to take that acronym this morning and and share some things with you from God's Word in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and really the whole book of 1 Corinthians and, and unfold for us the importance, the significance of, of living with a resurrection perspective or living with a view of eternal things. So possibly you've found that passage of Scripture by now, and so let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 15. We'll read the whole chapter, but we'll focus in by the end of the message this morning on two specific verses that take place centrally in the passage. So follow along if you would. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received and in which you stand, and by which you, have been, which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
and that he raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we see in those few verses the, the nature or the essence or, or the totality of the gospel. The gospel is simply the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the burial is affirmation of his death in this text. And then those who see Christ after his resurrection are affirmation of the resurrection. So the two key elements to the gospel are the death of Christ which was substitutionary for our sins. It was an atoning act. And then the resurrection of Christ in which he imputes to us or gifts to us his righteousness. And he goes on to say, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he has appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." If we just stop there for a moment and just meditate on really all the evidences of the resurrection of Christ, Christ is not just, or the Apostle Paul is not just expecting these people to take his word for it, but he is laying out several evidences, uh, 500 plus uh, witnesses, um, firsthand witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And um, in this passage of scripture, he emphasizes these witnesses and and really this more than any other passage of scripture in the Bible to give evidence to the resurrection of Christ. He goes on to say, now if Christ is proclaimed, verse number 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not risen, if there is no resurrection, then what we preach and what we believe is is empty. It's futile is what the word vain means. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. And you can stop and meditate on that passage of Scripture, and you can see all of the negative impacts to First of all, if there is no resurrection, which we know that's not true, but to somebody who believes there is no resurrection, or maybe a better way of saying it is somebody who believes or somebody who refuses to believe and live like there is a resurrection. It's one thing to make a mental assent to the idea of somebody raising from the dead. It's completely another thing to live like you know when you die, 
that's not the end, but there's something beyond that. Follow on with me in verse 20. But in fact, in other words, let's, let's go the other direction here. If these things were true in verse 12 through 19, then it would be really, really bad. But in fact, those things are not true and these things are true. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his foot. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God hath put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted when put all things, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all and in all. This is the positive, if you will, impact of faith in the resurrection of the Lord and and the process by which that resurrection takes place. In verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And that's a unique phrase there, and I don't want to spend a lot of time focusing in on it, but he's talking about the baptism. The scripture talks about baptism by fire, um, the idea of baptism of suffering, a life that is full of suffering. And he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then then why are people suffering for the sake of of the lost? When it's talking about dead here, it's referring to dead and trespasses and sins. If there is no life after this, then why are people suffering to see the lost saved? Why does it matter? And that's the emphasis of that phrase. Verse 30, it says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, if there is no resurrection, there is no reason to suffer in this life. There is no reason to serve Christ in this life. Live selfish, live selfishly, live for yourself. Get all that you can get and do all that you can do and, and uh, have all the pleasure that you can have if there is no resurrection. But watch what he says. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Or wake up unto righteousness, is what other versions say. For some have no knowledge of God. 
And I say this to your shame. 35 says, but some will, will ask, how are the dead raised? And what body will the, what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, for, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also will those who are, also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Let me just stop there for a moment and remind you, the Bible says the last enemy that will be destroyed in the beginning of this text, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. How is death destroyed? It is destroyed through the resurrection. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this, we have this in, in, intense expression, explanation of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, the process of the resurrection, infusing faith into us that to believe in the resurrection, that there is a life beyond this. And then he says this to close the chapter, therefore, because all of this is true, because there is life beyond this, because we're not just living for this moment, but we're living for eternity, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable or immovable, 
stable, be steadfast and stable. Man, uh, two, uh, two terms that um, in no way describe our world today, but in every way ought to describe us as believers. When we look at the coronavirus, when we see the crisis that we're in, we can say in light of the resurrection, we can live in light of the resurrection and say, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is a passage of scripture that really does an amazing job of, of unfolding for us the idea, the truth of the resurrection and how in Christ and through Christ's resurrection, the first fruits that we also can have hope that one day there'll be a resurrection of all those who will believe. And based upon that faith, uh, not based upon that resurrection, which is a futuristic resurrection, but, but based upon the faith that we believe that that resurrection is true, that we're anticipating fully, hopefully, that we will resurrect from the grave, that it will impact the way that we function and the way that we live our lives. I want to unfold. I have three thoughts for you this morning. The last one is going to be the one that we're going to centrally focus on. The, the last thought this morning is really the, the main focus. It's, a, it's two verses in the passage of Scripture, verse 33 and 34, that have in them three imperative statements. In other words, three statements of command. So you have a a chapter that's really an instructive passage or or chapter on the resurrection from the dead, and then uniquely sandwiched right in the middle are two verses with three commands. And, And really a fourth one, we'll look at a fourth one as well, that's it's not an imperative in the text, but it's an, an implied imperative. And so I want to look at those with us this morning. The, the main theme of the book of Corinth, of the book of Corinthians, and to the uh, people of Corinth, is that it is a plea to resurrected people. Okay? So, so Corinthians is a book written to resurrected people. In other words, these are saved people. For the most part, you're dealing with saved people in Corinth who have fallen asleep. They've been lulled into laziness. They've been lackadaisical in their following of Christ. So 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians is a plea to a spiritually resurrected people to wake up and to begin again to live in the light of the resurrection. This may not make a lot of sense to you at this point, but I pray that by the time that we're done, you will be helped by this message. Many Christians today have experienced spiritual renewal, but have fallen asleep practically. In other words, we're inactive. We're we're not useful for the kingdom of the Lord. While we're spiritually alive, we have become ineffective. We have become purposeless for spiritual use. I want to read to you, if you'll turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. I think this is a passage that would shine some light on this idea of, of being in the Lord's house, of being a part of his, of his kingdom, being a part of his family, um, but being not, not very functional, I guess, not very effective for his glory and for his work. 
2 Timothy chapter number 2, here's what the scripture says. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Uh, Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable. In other words, there are vessels in the house that their their significance is is not not, um, measured, is not as valuable as perhaps others in the house who are functioning well. Um, I'll give you an illustration of it. It's like, well... It's a lot of things that could be illustrated in, in this situation to describe something that's, that's in the house, it's there, it's present, but it doesn't have much use versus something that's in the house, it's there, and it's present, and it's very, very functional. Um, on this side, you could just kind of, it's there, but you could just kind of live without it, right? It's not that important. And on this side, it's like, it's like the oven, it's like the, the refrigerator or the bathroom or the um, kitchen sink or and those types of things that would be pretty difficult to live without those things. Um, that's the idea here. He says if we will, if we will uh, cleanse ourselves from those things that are dishonorable, in other words, rid ourselves of those things in our life that are causing us to be ineffective for the Lord... Then he says, we will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. We go back to our text this morning. Actively living in view of eternity, three simple things. First of all, I want to talk to you about the setting of Corinth. It's important to know the, it is important to know the challenges that, Corinth, that the people of Corinth faced in order to understand why the Apostle Paul writes the way that he does and why he concludes the way he does in the book of 1 Corinthians. Why does he write the way that he does? So, so the, book of, the book of 1 Corinthians is written around the time of A.D. 57. The Apostle Paul is writing to this, to this people, to this church. This is uh, Corinth is a thriving, prosperous, strategically located city in south central Greece, okay, it is, uh, was an ancient, in ancient times it was the place through which all land travel had to go, all land travel had to go through Corinth, to get, through Corinth in, in Greece to get to their destination, and therefore it became a, a major place of trade, a very, very uh, successful place, very, very profitable place, very, very business-minded place. It was also uh, built on an acropolis or uh, a high city, and these high cities were, were, made, were, were built for two purposes. One was for defense, so they could see when the enemy was coming and, and, and get ahead, um, perhaps get an advantage, and the other was for them to participate in pagan worship. These higher places would be places where the pagans would set up their gods, set up their temples, set up their places of worship, and they would go to these quote-unquote high places. And the Old Testament talks about tearing down the high places on a number of occasions. So they would set up these high places as places of worship. And Corinth was one of those places where adultery was very strong. 
the temple of, of, our, of, the temple of Aphrodite was there in Corinth, which was the goddess of love. And in this temple, there were thousands of what were called priestesses who were actually prostitutes. And these prostitutes would go down into the city and they would mingle amongst the people of Corinth and amongst those who were passing through. And they would administer or apply their trade there. It was a very, Corinth was a very immoral place, a very wicked place, a very materialistic place, a very sinful place. This is why John, John MacArthur says this about, about Corinth. He says, even to the pagan world, the city was known for its corruption. So much so that the statement, to behave like a Corinthian, came to represent gross immorality and drunkenness. The name Corinth became synonymous with moral depravity. In other words, when you thought about being a Corinthian, you just thought of something horrific. And we could think of some places today that maybe would uh, be described in that way. I think uh, lots of people think about Las Vegas in that way. It's a sin city, right? It's known for its sinfulness. It's known for its uh, depravity. This is what Corinth was like. A chemist, not even a Christian, but a chemist once said about Corinth, Corinth is a, is a commercial city interested only in materialistic things. Corinthians was a, was a materialistic place, a selfish place, a self-focused place. What's unique about Corinth is that when the Apostle Paul writes this book to them, the, the self-centered nature of the culture of Corinth had, had already crept into the church as well. And what you'll see throughout the entire book of Corinthians is this selfish, this selfish expression constantly being seen all already in the church. And let me just give you some thoughts on this. Chapters one through four is about division over favoritism. I, I like Paul and I like Apollos. I like Cephas and I like Christ. I like this type of preaching and I like this type of leader and I like this type of this and this type of this. And they all wanted their own way. The apostle Paul, he's very, first four chapters, he's very, very harsh with them on this issue because they had, they had fallen into this idea of selfish, selfishly wanting all that they wanted. It was all about them. Chapter number five is about allowing gross sin into the church, a sin that is so horrific, the Bible says that not even the, the lost world would speak of it or be involved in it. Chapter 6 is about going to court with your neighbor or with your brother to, to get your own way. Somebody has defrauded you. Somebody has taken what is rightfully yours. And in chapter number 6, it's like, hey, I want to go to court with these people. I want to get what's rightfully mine. And the apostle Paul has to rebuke them for that and say, hey, listen, be defrauded. Selfishness. Chapter number 7 is all about marriage and the disrespect for the marriage covenant. A sexual immorality was rampant because nobody wanted to be faithful to their own wife to the point where the Apostle Paul says, listen, just stay single. Just stay single. It's better if you be like me than that you, you walk through life with all these, with this, this uh, immorality in your, in your life and, and, and adultery and fornication. 
Chapter number eight is all about in consideration of your brother. It's eating and drinking things that will be offensive to a younger brother. But hey, who cares? I'm going to eat and drink whatever I want. I don't care who it offends. That's the attitude of the Corinthian church. It's like I want what I want, and you're not going to stop me from getting it. Here we are in the Christian world that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to service, and the attitude of the Corinthian people is who do we serve? We serve self. Chapter number nine, the apostle Paul literally goes and he talks about greed, of the greed of the church and their unwillingness to even take care of the apostles' needs. He even says, I'm not going to even take any money from you because if I take it from you, you'll think I owe you something back or you'll put a price tag on the gospel. Chapter number 10 is idolatry, doing things not, are not doing things for the glory of God. Chapter number 11, they're come to the Lord's Supper to take communion. And what's their attitude? People were getting drunk and they were getting filled with so much food. They were gorging themselves. And, and half of the crowd that was in the front of the line got, got piles of food on their plate. While the other half of the crowd that was in the back of the line, likely the poor people didn't get anything. What does the apostle Paul say? He rebukes them. Chapters numbers 12 through 14, you know what it's all about? It's all about pride. It's about using spiritual gifts for selfish gain. Using spiritual gifts to exalt self. Specifically, the gift of tongues is mentioned in chapter 14. But what we see clearly in the church at Corinth is that they were self-centered. They were full of themselves. They, were, they, they, they desired what they wanted. They were called in chapter number three, worldly. They were called babies. They were called carnal because they were full of self. Every chapter in this, in this, every chapter in this book, except for 15, and 15 could be, could be put into the lumpus well, is a reprimand of selfish actions. Apostle Paul even says, I'm not going to even put myself in your care because I can't trust you because you're so selfish. You're so full of yourself. So what, what, what's the background? What's the backdrop? It's, 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 a, it's a church that is full of selfishness. My challenge to us this morning is, it's not to say that we're a church that's full of selfishness. I don't, I don't believe that we're, we are. I would say this to us. I would say that we need, to be, we need to be watchful, we need to be guarded, we need to be honest and serious about the fact that this, if this stuff could creep into Corinth, it's not impossible that it could creep into our churches today. We live in America where self-centeredness is, is, is a um, virtue. Independence is something that we're to be proud of versus selflessness and dependence. This is, the, this is the setting of Corinth. Number two, what is the solution for Corinth? The solution is simple. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the solution, but just think with me. Chapter number 15, we come, we come through 14 chapters of the Apostle Paul rebuking for selfishness. And what do we come to in chapter number 15? We simply come to a passage that defends the resurrection. What, what the Apostle... Paul is saying, and what 1 Corinthians 15 begs the question of, have you forgotten the resurrection? 
Have you somehow forgotten that it's not about this life as much as it is about the next life? Have we somehow put aside the fact that we're living for the sake of eternity, that we're actively living in view of eternity so that we can embrace, we've put that aside so that we can embrace the temporal, the unimportant, and the insignificant? The Apostle Paul says to the church of Corinth, you are living so much for this life, it seems as if you have though, as though you have lost sight of the reality and the importance of the next life. To believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is to believe that we also will rise from the dead and to live in light of that reality. You see, you see the truth this morning that 1 Corinthians presents to us as a whole book is simply this. We are all challenged by selflessness, and the only solution to selflessness is eternity. It is, it is having a perspective on life that it's not about what I get today. It's about what I'm looking forward to in forever. Let me read a couple of passages to you. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of God and come out. Did you hear that? That all those who are in the tombs will hear. That's kind of a miracle right there in and of itself, right? All those who are dead will hear, okay? Okay, we could stop and think on that for just a minute. All that are dead are going to hear, and they're going to come out of the grave. Those who have done good, those who, who have obeyed the gospel to the resurrection of life, but those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Listen, folks, as, as Christians, this is what matters. This is what means something. It not only means something for us to, to make our calling and election, election sure, but it means something for us on how we live our lives so that we can bless others to make their calling and election sure. We can't live for today. We must live for eternity. Hebrews 9, 27, and just as is appointed unto men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. The Apostle Paul says in other places in Corinthians, he says, it is, the, it is the fear of the Lord that persuades me. It is the love of the Lord that persuades me to tell others, to be eternally minded and eternally focused. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Apostle Paul says, I live. My affliction in this life, my struggles in this life, my challenges in this life, the coronavirus in this life, the crisis that we're going through right now, it is a short, light affliction. You say, Pastor John, how can you call it a short, light affliction? There's only one way, and that is in light of the resurrection and in light of eternity. That is the only way that we can see these things the way that we ought to. So... What is the setting? The setting is a people who struggle with self. The solution is what? 
a people who focus on eternity, actively living in view of eternity. The last thought this morning, I've entitled this, so you have the setting, the solution, and then the script. The script is just simply four things that God, four what we would call imperatives in the text that God instructs us with, commands us to, so that we can do this. Listen, if we as Christians could just embrace the eternal the eternal nature of, of, of our lives, the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection to eternal life for us and the resurrection to eternal condemnation to those who do not believe, it will change the way that we function. So in these two, in these two verses, there are four imperatives, and I'm gonna give them to you and, and do a little bit of exposition and then, and then pray and, and just um, move on here. The Bible says in verse Number 32, it says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then he goes on and he says, here's these imperatives. Number one, the first imperative is, do not be deceived. Um, I've entitled this imperative, avoid simplicity. The word here simply means do not err. Do not be seduced. Do not be caused to go astray. Do not be led to want to wonder. Okay? In other words, when you talk about simplicity, you go back to the book of Proverbs, and it's the idea of don't be easily deceived. Don't, don't just be a follower. Don't be easily moved away from the truth. Be, be solid in the truth. Know what the word of God says. Know what the truth is. It doesn't mean you have to be argumentative argumentative about it, but, but be solid and be firm. That's what's going to make you 1 Corinthians 15, 58, stable in these difficult situations. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Specifically, he's talking about don't be led astray into thinking that temporal things are what matter, right? Do not be led astray as to thinking that the resurrection has already happened or that the resurrection is not going to happen. Do not be led astray as to thinking that the problems that we're, gonna, that we're facing today are not, are, are, are not the most significant thing that's going on in our life. Do not be led astray that what people think about us and what's going on is really what matters. There's, there's this eternity that we're looking forward to, that we're anticipating, that we're embracing, that Christ has purchased for us in his crucifixion and resurrection, and we're living in light of that reality. The battle for the mind and the true purpose for life is raging every single day. This is why Satan is called a deceiver. This is why Satan is, is called a liar. This is why Satan is called a manipulator. What's he doing? He's trying to get us to see things the way that he sees things instead of seeing, the, seeing things the way that God sees things. He wants us to love that which we can see, that which we can touch, that which we can feel, that which we can experience. He's wanting, wanting us to embrace that which is temporal, and he's wanting us to give up that which is eternal. My mom would always ask when we were growing up, and we would ask her if we could do something, or we would tell her we were going to do something, or we would go and do something. She would always ask us the question, what eternal value does it have? Oh, that we might ask ourselves those questions. This is why Matthew 6 tells us, don't lay up treasures in 
in, on the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is why 1 Timothy 6.10 says, do not love money because it is the root of all kinds of evil. This is why Colossians 3.2 says, set your affections on things above. Do not be deceived by Satan or his minions, and that's what he's talking about here, bad company ruins good morals, is not just Satan, but, but the people that Satan's using to bring this deception. Do not be deceived by Satan or his people on the things that matter in this life. Remember this, God matters, people matter, eternity matters, and truth matters. If you can focus in on those four things, you're going to be pretty well off in this life spiritually. 1 John 4 and verse 1, the Bible says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Avoid simplicity. Number two, it says avoid, uh, I've titled this point, avoid sluggishness. He says, awake, wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up from your drunken stupor or other versions say, awake unto righteousness, awake unto something that is purposeful. Sluggishness is simply this. The context here is he's saying, wake up out of your, wake up out of your, uh, in your, your lack of purpose. Wake up out of your lack of intentionality. Wake up out of your just floating through life. It's like your sleep, like Christians in, in 1 Corinthians have been so uh, manipulated by the devil that we're sleepwalking through life. Eternity is, eternity is on the line for many who are lost. We're living for a reward in eternity, and yet we are just walking and floating through life as if nothing matters. This is what he's saying. I mean, this is, this is a powerful statement. He's saying, wake up. Wake up to eternity. There is a purpose we should live and function in such a way where there is an intentionality. We should do everything with a reason for being intentional. We should be diligent about serving the Lord, knowing that it does matter. It matters for the sake of eternity. If you can imagine for a moment somebody coming up to you, if maybe you're in a drunken stupor, or maybe you're deep in a deep sleep and you're sleepwalking, or maybe you're just walking worthlessly through life, or maybe you're in a house that's burning and you're asleep in that house, and just imagine somebody coming up and shaking you. Wake up! Wake up! That is what this text is saying. Living in light of eternity is a wake-up call for us. It is to live with purpose it is to live with intention. It is to live with diligence and motivation for eternal things, not just for the things of this life. Just a few chapters before, here's what the Apostle Paul says about this. Do you not know that in a race all are running, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who's beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it from under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might become disqualified. The apostle Paul refers to it as running and boxing, and he says in both cases, do it to win. Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 and also 1 Corinthians 10, he says, all things are lawful for me, 
He means all things are allowed. I can do whatever I want, but all things are not good for me. All things are not right. Avoid avoid deception, avoid simplicity, but avoid sluggishness. Avoid just letting life happen to you and live in light of the resurrection. The third thing that he tells us in these imperatives is this. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. The third thing is avoid selfishness. What he's saying to the church is, he says, do not continue. I like the way that he phrases that. He doesn't say, he doesn't say don't. He says, do not continue. And in other words, it's a stopping statement. It's stop living selfishly. Stop living for yourself. It's, it's the, first 14, the first 14 chapters, and he's saying, stop. Stop those things. Stop living for yourself. It is a plea for selflessness. Selflessness. It is a plea for selflessness. It is a plea to live for others. It is a plea to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow the Lord. To live in such a way as 2 Corinthians 4.12 tells us that death is working in us, but life is working in others. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ compels us because we conclude this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus gives a requirement for being his disciple. And you know what the first of that is? If anyone desires to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everything about the law and the prophets is summed up in this statement. Love God and love others. The only way that you can live life, listen, the only way that I can live life, the only way that Grace, Grace Bible Church can live life effectively for the glory of God is to live life with eternity in mind. The only way that we can live with, with God as the focus and others serving others is with eternity at the forefront of our mind. Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 through 40. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. I would say to you this morning, church, that our challenge is we've become a people, uh, the church as a whole, have become a people that's not, that are no longer focused on loving God and loving people. We've become focused on 8,000 other things, and we must wake up and live in light of eternity and the resurrection. Vody Bauckham describes selflessness this way. A, selfish, a selfless man will be characterized by patience, restraint, and an eagerness to do what is best for the object of his affections. We must avoid selfishness, not live in that selfishness any longer. Lastly, this morning, the scripture says this. This is the last imperative in this text, and it is an an implied imperative. It's not an imperative in the text. It's implied. Listen to what he says. 
he says, do not go on sinning. And then he says this, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. The last thought is avoid silence. One of the most devastating, if you just, if you just stop with me for a moment, please, and just think about this with me, because this is what, where the rubber meets the road, okay? One of the most devastating fruits of selfishness one of the most devastating fruits of selfishness is the loss and the lack of evangelism. If you think about for just a moment, why aren't we sharing the gospel with more people? Why aren't we talking to our neighbors? Why aren't we talking to the homeless? Why aren't we communicating with everybody that we can about this thing that is eternal, that their, their life doesn't end when they die in this, in this world, but it goes on for eternity somewhere. Why aren't we sharing that message with somebody? Why aren't we urgent about sharing that message with somebody? I will tell you the reason why. It is a natural result, as the Apostle Paul breaks out here, it is a natural result of selfishness and a lack of eternal perspective. It is not living life like there's going to be a resurrection one day. It is not waking up in the morning and saying, you know something, how can I live in such a way that when, when I resurrect from the grave and live in the next life, it's going to be good for me, and when my neighbor resurrects from the grave, it's going to be good for them as well. Does that make sense? The most devastating fruit of selfishness is a lack of evangelism, and Satan has done much to destroy our evangelism by making us self-centered. All you have to do is go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and you see the challenge of Eve was selfishness, that Satan got her to meditate on herself. And that was the fall. And that's what he's been doing ever since that point. Jesus called us to carry out his mission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All power has been given to me on heaven and in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go Preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them, or make disciples of every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has called us to preach the gospel to all the world. And listen, this morning, what is going to keep us from doing that is a focus on self and now, and not a focus on the resurrection and eternity. Remember this, when Jesus Christ called us to preach the gospel, he told us that it would cost us everything. And what has happened is this, through the years, sacrificing everything has become too much. Through the years, sacrificing everything has become too much, and therefore, we have become silent. My friends, for the sake of God and his glory, tell others about the hope of Jesus Christ. Tell others about the hope of eternity. Tell others about the hope of the resurrection. This will relieve them of the pressures of the moment. It will relieve them of the fear of a pandemic. Let us tell them that when we die, we raise again to life. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's not perishable, that is, that is, peri- that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Tell somebody about that. Wow. Wow. Through the resurrection of Christ, we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is eternal, that is in heaven waiting for us. On this Easter, let us remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that we might have life. He ascended up into heaven and he left us here to carry out his mission in the power of his Holy Spirit. We've been left to minister for him, for his glory. The challenge that we face is that Satan has done everything he can to take our minds off of the resurrection and off of eternal things and plant us in the immediate and plant us in the now and plant us in the selfish things. What can we do? We must learn to avoid focusing on the temporary. We must learn to avoid becoming sluggish. We must pursue life without selfish ambitions, and we must be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I close with these verses. Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that, it, that the hour has come for you to awake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. And then the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we who were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Now, Father, I do pray that you would be with us today, this Easter, as we celebrate and remember and think about the power of the resurrection. Lord, help us to re-embrace it. Help us to believe in it, to trust in it, to, to depend upon it, to expect it, and to live in light of that expectation. To live a life that is sold out to the things that are eternal, that really matter. The souls of men, the glory of God, the things that matter, truth, those things. Let our, let our lives be, be, let us live under the commission of eternal things. We pray, dear God, that you would forgive us where we fail, that you would refocus us where we need to be refocused, and that would, you would use us for your glory and by your grace. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that uh, this service, the songs, the preaching of God's word, and, and all of the aspects of it were an encouragement to your heart, and not just an encouragement to your heart, but may, may they be a challenge to your heart today. May we, we uh, take from this moment and, and give back to the Lord what he, has, what he has asked of us, what he has required of us in this text. May we know that the resurrection is going to happen, and that the life that really matters is that which is eternal. I hope that God has met with you today and your family. I pray that this Easter is a special blessing to you. 
I will be praying for you throughout this week and look forward to seeing you, yes, virtually, but in spirit, we can be together. Lord bless you.